Welcome to the EIS Navigator. I'm your host, Brian Moretta. FinTech is one of the most popular areas for investment. Today, we get a specialist in the area, James Pringle, to talk about it. We cover why the UK is a leader, how FinTechs grow and expand, and what they should be focusing on to achieve that growth. If you join the podcast, don't forget you can subscribe on all good podcast services, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. If you have any suggestions for future topics or guests, then you can email us at inquiries at harmonandco.com. Without any further ado, enjoy this episode. So today we are joined by James Pringle, who is the founder of Pringle Capital and is about to launch a new AI fund with Goldsmith Ventures. Welcome to the podcast, James. Thank you very much for having me, Brian. As usual, we'd like to find out a bit more about you. So can you tell us how you became involved in the EIS fund management? Yeah, sure. So I started out working in startups. Uh, The first company I worked for after university, we went through seed camp. So we were in Google campus surrounded Uh by lots of amazing founders and designers, developers, angels, VCs. And that was a really kind of foundational experience very early in my career. I founded a business in 2015 called Suggestive which was backed by Angels and by Fuel Ventures, which is a very well-known EIS fund. And we grew that business. It was a SaaS company. And the technology and clients were acquired in 2019 by a video advertising company that was one of our partners. So that was kind of my first-hand founder experience. And And what did Suggestive actually do? Yeah, so in the same way that YouTube has a algorithm that will recommend the next video for you to watch we built an algorithm and we licensed it to people like bloomberg mail online lad bible new york post and lots of other media companies around the world every every video that was watched based on one of our recommendations we'd get paid you know 0.01 p something like that but it all adds up so i think at one point more than 85% of the UK had watched a video through our video player in a single month. And that was kind of led by Mail Online, Lab Bible, and Bloomberg. Those were our biggest clients. So, yeah, we've inadvertently, people have used our technology. So, so after the, you, you, you exited the company? Yeah. So, after that, I, I wanted to get more involved on the investment side of things. I'd raised money myself and I'd quite enjoyed the fundraising side of it. And I wanted that kind of broader exposure of working with lots of different companies. So I started by setting up Pringle Capital, which started with me investing and a few people that back suggestive kind of looking at things. And then lockdown hit almost immediately because this was the start of 2020. And I decided that not only was I not going to be able to invest in every deal that I liked, but also you know, founders want access to capital. And so we decided to turn it into an investor network. And it's now grown to be one of the largest in the UK. It's got over 470 members and it's very active. People invest on a deal by deal basis. And we we run a simple capital introduction model for that. And then whilst I was building that, the long-term plan was always to launch a fund. And 89% of our investor network are UK taxpayers looking for EIS. So it was sort of a natural progression that we'd do an EIS fund. And I actually co-founded my first EIS fund last tax year with two brothers, Marcus and Adrian Love, and that was called Love Ventures. So that was my first experience of being a fund manager. And we invested in fintech and prop tech. We felt these were really great industries for the UK. There's some kind of structural advantages around those sectors. So um, that's what we invested in. And we built a really strong portfolio for Fund One across those sectors. So we invested in eight companies between kind of January and April of this year. And then in April, I, I left to launch my own fund, which is what I'm working on at the moment. So we're, we're just awaiting approval and then we can um, start to collect funds and then hopefully start to deploy. Excellent. So it sounds like you're, you're moving quickly and progressing quickly up the the investing chain? I, I, I actually, my first instinct was to go and apply for some jobs in venture when I finished Suggestive. And from having a couple of interviews and talking to a few people, I kind of realized that I, I wouldn't necessarily get that much repetition, like 
reps, as I say, sort of in the game by working as an associate. I wasn't going to sit on an investment committee. I wasn't going to be raising from LPs. I wasn't going to get that much exposure to the kind of core components of running a fund, which are three elements. There's the operational side, which you can often outsource in the early days. There's the fundraising side, which is you know, raising money from limited partners. And then there's the investment side. So actually sourcing and doing deals. And I felt that by being kind of junior, I wasn't actually going to get that much exposure to any of those elements. So I went down the angel network route and I'm really glad that I did because the Love Ventures opportunity came very quickly as a result of that. And then now I've done it. I've done one fund and I know how all three of those elements work. And that's what I'm, I'm taking all that experience into Goldsmith Ventures. And so we've been able to move a lot faster um, this time around because I've kind of done it once already before. But I still feel like a founder. I'm just a founder of funds rather than a founder of tech companies. So I definitely, you know, take my experience from being a founder into what we do today. Mm-hmm. Excellent. So you mentioned that you started investing in fintech and... Well, it's a big area in venture, something we haven't really discussed properly on the podcast. So I thought it would be a good idea to tap into your sort of knowledge of this area and discuss a bit more about what fintech is and why it's attractive and some of the issues, good and bad, or your know, challenges about investing in it. So let's go back to the very beginning. Probably everybody listening knows what fintech is, but perhaps if you want to tell us what fintech really is to you. Yeah, so fintech is kind of what it says on the tin. It's anything financial services that's driven by technology or enabled by technology. So that can include accounting, banking, wealth, pensions, payments, trading, cash, cybersecurity. Um, it, it really can cover quite a broad sector. And notable companies will be things like Revolut and Pension B, which is now public, Wise, which was formerly TransferWise. So you know, it's anything financial services really that is built around tech. So one of the best things about fintech is it is a huge, huge market. When you're investing in fintech, you generally don't ever have total addressable market issues. So you know that if this company cracks it in their vertical, they have the chance of being a very, very big company because the market is so large. So so that's one thing that is exciting about fintech. For the UK investors specifically, we've seen that the UK has an unfair advantage within the sector. So why is, you mentioned that earlier, why is that? Yeah, so there's a, there's a few reasons. So there's kind of the structural reasons and then there's the success breeding, more success reasons. So the structural reasons that gave the UK a leg up in the first place were around open banking, uh, payments infrastructures, things like that. So kind of regulatory stuff. Then there's the capital markets within London element, which is that London has always been a financial services capital, you know, maybe alongside kind of Frankfurt, Shanghai, and New York. London is, you know, one of those pillars. So there was all of that. And then the the kind of knowledge base that that creates is there are lots of people who have worked in traditional finance who can actually help structure you know, new wave finance, let's call it. Those were some of the reasons why the UK got off to a good start in fintech. And now what we see is a kind of recycling of that knowledge, capital and experience and success into earlier stage. So now a early stage fintech may be able to hire a head of growth from Monzo or a head of product from TransferWise. And these people have already been on the scale up experience within their sector. So there's kind of a flywheel of success happening. And that's why fintech is still very exciting. And Revolut was recently valued at 33 billion. But if you actually look at what they're trying to achieve, they kind of fire up new departments around insurance or buy now, pay later or pensions. They've got a long way to go still. This is a company that could be, you know, hundreds of billions worth of market cap. And there will be lots of companies that also fit into the sector and become very large. So we're still kind of scratching the surface, really. And then, you know, around the world, there's lots of opportunity for, you know, the unbanked in other countries and 
and then everything that comes after that. So banking was kind of the first, personal banking was kind of the first frontier, whereas now fintech is much, much broader than that. We're looking at all of those kind of verticals that I mentioned earlier, like mortgages, pensions, payments, cybersecurity, et cetera. So yeah, it's a, it's a huge market and it's, there's still a long way to go, which is very exciting. Yeah, and I think that, that you touched on something there that for me is a kind of interesting dy- dynamic in that fintech, if I think, you know, the first stab at fintech in my mind was, okay, we've got the big banks, which are built on archaic IT systems. Let's create another bank, which just ha- happens to have an update IT system, so inevitably will be more efficient. And that's kind of your Atom Bank, your Monzo, that sort of thing. But what we've seen, in my mind, is going beyond that. So you had someone transfer-wise who started off by focusing on a single product area, but they're kind of developing into a, using that as a tool, if you like, a, a beachhead into, into financial services and spreading beyond that. How do you see the sort of development of of fintech over time yeah so i think we've seen this with all sort of the big fintech so monzo started with personal banking as you say transfer wise started with fx um revolut actually started with fx as well but Mm -hmm. moved very quickly across to um banking and other services just this week monzo have announced monzo flex which is a in-app buy now pay later scrolling bar where you can split your payments over three, six or 12 months, which is really interesting. So um, yeah, we've seen kind of horizontalization or, um, of fintechs. And I think it's, it's, it's kind of a balancing act for anyone building a fintech is, yes, there will be a few fintech super apps like Revolut and probably TransferWise and Monzo are probably next on the list to, to get anywhere near Revolut in terms of being able to offer sort of everything financial services. But one thing you may notice is that if you compare the Revolut app to the Monzo app, Monzo is much tidier because it does less. So it's much easier to use and it's got less functionality, but it's much more focused on the core value proposition of what it promises the user it's going to deliver. So I think we'll see kind of two strategies. You'll get the Fintechs going very deep on their vertical and just kind of owning a particular vertical. Someone like Pension B, I imagine, will continue to just innovate within pensions um, unless they rebrand to B or something. (laughs) So um, I think you will see companies that just specialize and the market's big enough to host that. And you will see companies going across verticals. And I think the reason for that is because Basically, the valuation of these startups is driven by two metrics. It's number of users and annual revenue per user, so ARPU. And they're all trying to increase their ARPU. So they're all trying to get that up. And the best ways to do that are through credit and savings and pensions and all these things, because actually banking and FX, bear in mind, they've they've competed by cutting fees, basically they, those products don't make that much money. So they have to go across the different verticals. Whereas something like Pension B, it is in pensions, it makes money from pensions and um, it doesn't need to go down the credit or the mortgage or the, mm-hmm. you know some of these other routes that the, the kind of big fintech super apps are, are having to go into. Does that create a challenge? Because if I think about FX... And in my mind, FX has been one of the great mysteries for most of my working career where it's been terribly inefficient with disgustingly high margins from a consumer's perspective or fantastic if you're a corporate. And banks have sort of, okay, we'll charge 30 quid a transaction even if you transfer in 10 quid. And we've kind of got this oligopoly and no one's really competing on it because no one's going to move on the basis of international transfers. So there's kind of scope for a transfer-wise or a Revolut to come in very easily and just say, okay, we're just doing it for 1% or whatever and undercut very cheaply. But if you're getting into, say, credit, the banks are really, you know, they're their own credit. Um, they're their own deposit taking. Mortgages is a very competitive market. Does that make it a big challenge? Presumably it makes it a big challenge for these fintech companies to expand into these other areas, even though it's, in theory, they're more profitable. 
Yeah, so I'd say there's kind of two themes there. The first is X as a service offerings. So there's a lot of kind of B2B fintech being developed now on the back end, which is selling to the likes of Revolut or Monzo and helping them unlock a new vertical by providing the tech infrastructure to do something very specific in a very good way. Mm-hmm. So that's one interesting thing that a lot of fintech investors are looking at is no longer just consumer fintech, but like who's building the rails and the back end and the infrastructure. So TrueLayer is an open banking provider. Um, who's building the true layer of buy now, pay later or the true layer of mortgages so that Revolut can say, here, do you want a mortgage? Well, just click on this button, but it's actually all powered by someone else. So there's that kind of like as a ser- X as a service offering that is taking off. Back to the point around like FX and people not necessarily migrating away from the sort of big traditional banks because of a singular service like FX. This is another trend which is kind of embedded finance. So it's kind of similar to X as a service, but you know, who's putting these kind of FX uh, or cheap FX fees at the point where the user already is rather than having to migrate them off to a new platform. So, um, you know, lots of users will use TransferWise, but TransferWise and Revolut and et cetera, they work best when the other person is also using that service. Even this week, I've had a FX issue with an investor who, you know, the the, the rate changed and the, the money they sent wasn't quite right. And so they needed to top it up and all these kinds of things. So who's building the, the FX as a service kind of bit that where we're interacting, we don't even need to think about it these kind of solutions are coming in and make, making the consumer experience better. So there's kind of like two elements and they're kind of similar, embedded finance and yeah, fintech as a service. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Because certainly I think about my own experience where I've used TransferWise, I've used Revolut primarily for FX. Maybe it's because I don't use TransferWise, I'll have to call them Wise now that much. I've never thought about using them for anything else. I don't even know what else they do. So... Trying to get into wider areas is, it's not easy. I'm not saying it's not impossible, but it's a more competitive landscape. Yeah, what they're really trying to do is turn engaged users who open their app daily and give them new offerings. So, you know, the the ones with the most, this is why Revolut's valued so much higher than Monzo, is it's got more users. So every time it unlocks a new vertical, it can generate revenue from it pretty quickly because it's got a massive user base and they've proven that they can unlock new revenue streams very quickly because of their product strategy and they generally move faster than than anyone else so you know that they look like the 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 leading horse in the race mm-hmm. to be the food, fintech super app i think other companies will struggle to try and enter new verticals that they're not as familiar with so i think that's why we're seeing kind of fintech as a service opportunities and b2b fintech springing up because yeah launching your own insurance product is really difficult whereas there's a company called cover q-o-v-e-r from belgium that provide white label insurance as a service and they now power revolutes insurance products they also power micro insurance for people like deliveroo and cowboy so you know there's really interesting companies out there that are, are helping the ones with the distribution to unlock new revenue streams. Okay. So, yeah, so, so it's, it's, it's genuinely uh, an, an ecosystem sort of effect. You mentioned about clustering, a sort of cluster effect. And wondering from your experience, does that mean that fintech's very London-focused from our perspective, or is, is there lots of options around the UK? There are, no, there are fintechs in other cities around the UK. And look, fintech is a phenomenon globally. Let's, you know, let's not kid ourselves. Obviously, London has done very well, but fintech is doing really well in LATAM and Africa and India. We had Australian buy now, pay later, Afterpay acquired by Square for 29 billion recently. You know, it, it's everywhere there is fintech providers. The UK has just got a head start. So, it's done very well and it's attracting the right talent and capital to to exaggerate that that advantage where possible that being said you know there are companies in manchester and leeds and bristol and southampton and norwich that are building good fintech so you know you're not restricted to 
to being a fintech, but you, you don't have to come to London. But there is more access to capital and talent here. So well, talent, you know, remote, all of that stuff is kind of changing, but the capital's here, really. Yeah, I mean, that, that's a problem for venture capital as a whole in that, you know, the UK is very, very London or Southeast biased in terms of the overall capital availability. Yeah, and the same could be said of San Francisco in America. So, you know, it, it, it's it's what naturally happens. You get these, like, hubs. But there are there are great companies being built in Manchester and Newcastle and all over the UK, there are, there are different, yeah, different themes, you know, Brighton's very good for esports and creative and stuff like that. And Dundee's amazing for gaming. They've had a lot of success up there with gaming studios and that's then spilling into new studios started by former employees. Newcastle's got the Ignite program, which has created some interesting companies. Manchester's always coming up with interesting stuff. And there's more and more funds now based in Manchester, which is great, that look at the north of England. So, you know, there's always opportunity where there's a, where there's something that's not being fulfilled. There is an opportunity. But naturally, you do get these hubs of capital and talent. And so, you know, people are kind of drawn towards those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Inevitable. And I'm thinking almost the other side of things, nationalisation a little bit, clearly finance is a global thing, but regulation is very national. And I think even within the EU, we've, we, we see that financial regulation is still really quite run, run along the lines of individual nations rather than, okay, we've got global licenses. How important is that for fintechs in terms of if they're after a global market, they want to internationalize, does that raise the threshold for the amount of capital they need if they want to go abroad or, or, or how does that affect them? Yeah, so certain fintechs require kind of capital on balance sheet to, to even operate within their regulatory requirements. So expanding into new markets can sometimes affect that. But ultimately, the UK has some of the best regulatory guidelines around finance and that helps our companies to expand into new areas because if they're regulated appropriately here, that usually means they can get their regulation elsewhere as well. So that is actually, again, one of the advantages for the UK within fintech. However, internationalization and expansion is difficult in any sector, in any industry, mm-hmm. for any company. So, you know, I think Revolut went to the US and they pulled out six months later and they've now re-entered based on the learnings of doing it the first time around. Whereas Canada, they smashed Canada straight away. It went really well. We see a lot of companies now picking Australia as the second market, which I think is really interesting, particularly in one of our other verticals, which is prop tech. So we invest in our new fund, invest in fintech, prop tech and insure tech, all sectors that the UK has an advantage in, particularly insure tech. Um, but prop tech, Australia is usually a natural second market. Um, it has a very good property scene. And despite the time zone, it's quite easy to to replicate what you've done here mm-hmm. over there. Is that because there's a similar regulatory structure or similar cultural things? Or, or what do you think is the attraction? I think the for, for the property space, it's, it's more of the cultural thing. So obviously, it depends on the company. But generally, you know, in the prop tech sector, we might be looking at a slightly lighter touch regulatory um, standpoint. So you really, you're just looking for what is a big market that is easy for us to expand into in terms of just taking what we've already got and selling it to a new audience. And that new audience is fairly receptive, operate in a fairly similar way, and it's a big enough market to justify. It's often quite a useful test bed before then entering the US, which has its own challenges because the US is not just one country, it's 50 states. And mm-hmm. that, I think that's a really important thing for everyone to understand. Every state is slightly different. So you can come up against hurdles that you, you might not experience. And there's been a lot of work from you know, lawyers and you know, financial advisors and all sorts of tax experts about helping UK companies go to the US. But it's still hard it's still very difficult so yeah i think australia has become a, a kind of natural test bed for a few companies to to try next but any expansion is is difficult and comes with challenges and has to be very well thought through 
you know, Tide Bank, really interesting. They went to India and they they saw that as the biggest opportunity because they see their mission really aligned with the kind of entrepreneurial spirit of the of the Indian business community, which is really interesting. So yeah, I, that was kind of exciting to see that that's the route they took. And um, every company needs to weigh up like what fits their strategy best and where, where they're going to have the biggest impact and, and growth opportunity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and the regulations, I think, interesting from another aspect in because we're focused on sort of EIS rules and that doesn't allow you to do lending. It doesn't allow you to do underwriting for insurance. You can't be an investment vehicle. So that effectively biases you away from some areas and towards others, I would imagine. So, so how how do you think that affects investor perspectives? Yeah, so you you can't invest EIS into sort of a, a new private equity firm or anything like that. So you know there, there are sort of restrictions. On the lending side, there are ways that it can be structured. So basically what they don't want is for you to raise a load of money through EIS. A simple way of thinking about EIS is it's almost like a co-investment scheme for the, for the government. So when you're getting 30% of your income tax relief back, the government is paying for that. They're, they're, they're picking that up. That's coming off your tax bill. If, if you would start a lending company and the government's kind of paying for some of the, the funds that have been put into the company, basically, they, you know, the, the whole lending model starts to get, it'd be just printing money and it just wouldn't be right. It would be like the government underwriting these loans and, and that wouldn't be right. So that's what they've done. So basically, the, the way to manage that is that most of the lending companies early stage will create a special purpose vehicle which holds the debt facility. And then that, comp- that SPV um, is owned by the lending company. So there are ways of structuring it where no one's losing out. The government's not directly underwriting <laughs> these loans. The money isn't being used that you're raising to lend with. So in the SPV, you're funding that by other debt facilities or, or, or other equity? Yeah, so with, with, with debt facilities, it's kind of like a, that you go up in scale. So you start with maybe one to three million and you lend that out and you test what your de- default rates are, what your average payback period is. You, and then once you've done that, you, you go up to the next level, which would be sort of five to 20 million. And then once you've done that, you do like 20 to 100 and then 100 plus. And there's different lenders or different capital providers that fit into each of those categories. So you might start off with a, a family office that gives you a fixed rate against their capital of 7%, something like that. And you go and lend that money out at a 15%. So you're, you're arbitraging that, that facility, essentially. And you're enabling it through tech or buy now, pay later, or whatever it might be, depending on the different company. But because you're not putting up that, that capital that you're lending isn't EIS money. It's it's a proper debt facility where you're paying a, a rate against it and you're lending it out at a different rate. So there are ways to structure lending around EIS that doesn't damage the the kind of ethics or anything around the scheme. And it's been done multiple times and it, it's not too difficult to do. Um, but it does usually require experience. So if we're looking at a lending company or a credit business or a buy now, pay later business, whatever it might be, we'll make sure there's someone on the team who is like seriously experienced in credit and debt facilities mm-hmm. and building yeah. that up um, because it is a very, very complex area. And, you know, I'll, I'll be honest, I'm a startup guy. I'm not a banking or finance guy. I'm so I'm looking at how, what is their product like? What do their numbers look like? What's the team like? And I'm not going to be able to add that much value on how you structure your debt facility once you get above 20 million. So, so we have to make sure that there's someone on the team that is, you know, is a safe pair of hands when it comes to those more technical aspects of, of credit. Yeah, I, I, I think there's an issue. and This is also related to InsureTech and some of the underwriting capability and someone making sure that you're, it's easy to lend money. It's not so easy to get it back sometimes. And you want to make sure a company is geared to getting the money back. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, whether it be fintech, prop tech, and short tech, 
one of our criteria for the investor network and for the new fund is founder market fit. So has this person got experience within this market? Do they know what they're doing? Do they have a black book of contacts and a wealth of knowledge within the sector? You know, most of the time you're investing in people who know a lot more about their sector than you do. So, and that's what you want. That's why you're backing them. That's why you're putting your capital to work into something that you don't have the time and resource to go and do it yourself. You, you would never want to, you know, these people are dedicating their life to something, but that they know a lot about. They've, they've been in the market, they've done their graft and built up their knowledge and experience. And now they're launching something that's going to help or change or do something new to that sector. And that's really what you're investing in. So yeah, founder market fit is really, really important. Yeah. And thinking in terms of establishing product market fit, you know, we, we all know the, the, the Facebook mantra about move fast and break things. People get kind of upset if you break things when it comes to finances. Yeah, you know, we've all seen whatever banks had outages at their ATMs and everyone goes, ah. How do you think that affects fintech companies and the way they develop their products and product market fit? Because presumably their experimentation is constrained a little bit by that. Yeah, it is. And this has been one of the challenges for the UK fintech scene is that in the UK, we're not particularly good at giving founders money when they haven't validated stuff. And we're quite risk averse at the early stages. And this, this is one of the amazing things about SEIS and EIS is it, it de-risks it for the first investors when there isn't really anything. You might, you might just have a team and a deck or you might have a, a prototype, but that's pretty much it. So um, that's what's amazing about SEIS, EIS and why it's so important to the ecosystem. But yeah, you've got to try and get to product market fit and there may be capital requirements that mean that you have to hold you know, capital on balance sheets and things like that. And it can be really hard. And you also want to keep the founders incentivized. So you can't dilute them low. So valuations are higher. So sometimes you get people going, well, why is this fintech valued at 25 million when it hasn't really done anything yet? And you say, well, because if it works, it's going to be worth two and a half billion and they need the money to do it in the mm -hmm. first place. And there's no point diluting them 80% because they're not going to be incentivized to do it anymore. So you know, you are giving them 2 million at a 25 million valuation because that's what they need to get to the next tier of fundraising. And they need that valuation to keep them incentivized. And it's not about a revenue multiple or anything like that. It's about where can this go? And does this still have 100x return potential? And if it does, um, that's the things that venture is investing in. You know, we're not looking at 12% or 14% year on year, you know, we're looking at, does this thing return 100x? That's what we have to look at, because they don't all make it that far. And you do need a company to return the entire fund at plus more and all these types of things. So I guess the answer to your question is, in the early stages, you're not really investing in product market fit until on a series A level. And for series A, you're kind of doing a million annual revenue. You, you've kind of worked things out by that point. You, if you're making a million pounds of annual revenue, you've probably got fairly decent product and a good grasp of how that works and everything. Um, before that, which is the stages we invest in, we're looking at other signals like how good is this team at building product? What experience do they have in building product? Um, what does the founder market fit look like? What are their expectations around retention and churn? And are those realistic with what we've seen across reviewing 100 other similar companies. So yeah, your you know, early stage investing is risky, but it also has the highest reward. So, you know, you're you're kind of trying to find the companies that you think will get through to series A and beyond and at Pringle Capital our strap line is investing in probable series A companies at seed <laughs> stage because those are the ones we want. We want companies to get through to a million annual revenue, we want to help them get there, and once they do, they'll raise a much bigger round at a much higher valuation and they'll go on hopefully to to big things. So product market fit's a funny one, but it's the it's what we're all hoping our companies get towards. Yeah. And and the other aspect of that which always concerns me a little bit, having having worked in financial services for a long time, in that it seems to me it's very difficult to create unique IP. If I create a product and I, I used to work for a company, I remember that insurance company where 
they're like, we've got just got to innovate something new every three months because three months later, everyone else is going to have copied what we do. So we don't have an advantage anymore. And it seems to me that's probably even more intense now. If, if Revolut come out with a product, someone else can probably do the same product pretty quickly. So presumably as you as an investor, that affects how you look at companies and what you're looking for. Yeah, so it, it really depends on the business. I mean, and a, you know, a lot of consumer stuff is clean UX and making it a nicer, easier experience or making it more convenient for users, which is hard to defend, but is still very nuanced. I mean, companies can look at your UX and they can still not get it quite right. The stuff that's probably defensible is things around like categorization and data science and understanding what does you've just paid for this thing. How do I categorize that automatically into the right bucket for your tax return? Stuff like that is more sophisticated and more defensible in the long run. But yeah, it's uh, a lot of a lot of stuff. The aim isn't to build a deep tech, the, the Google algorithm, and that's defensible. It's it, you know, our defensibility is our is our technology and our differentiation. Often it's about acquiring users at the right amount, monetizing them in the right way, engaging them, keeping them retained and building mass distribution. And then through that distribution, you have optionality to increase revenue and, and, and monetize that audience. But there are, there are things that are defensible, but it, you know, sometimes it's better to not worry too much about the stuff that could be defensible and focus more on growth and win by being big. So you know, is is it worth you know spending a year optimizing your categorization so that it's better, you know, ten percent better than the competition, or is it actually better to go from twenty click sign up to seven click sign up and optimize that user flow? Because actually, that's going to have a bigger impact on your on your metrics. It's going to bring in more users. They're going to feel happier that this was really easy to sign up. They're going to tell their friends how easy it is to sign up. You know, those types of things. So, defensibility is a funny one. Yeah, yeah. It's, it 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 seems to me it's a very dynamic thing as well. If I think back to when I was a banks analyst, um, uh, the theory of a lot of banks would be: we get your current account. Uh, certainly in consumer markets, we get your current account. You're in there. We can cross sell the mortgage, the credit card, whatever, and that's really kind of how we make the money. And because you're already with us. Once you've got the current account, even now, current accounts hardly ever move. Clearly, that model's breaking down, or you know, someone say it's ha- in some areas it has completely broken down. I don't know how, you know, I suspect they cross sell a lot less from current accounts than they used to the big banks. But if you're coming in as new financial services fintech, establishing a new product, the, the customers you're getting are probably already more likely to move. And hence, seems to me defensibility is just going to get harder. I, th- I think users only move for 10x better. They generally don't right. move for 10% better. Mm-hmm. So if you're building something and it's 10% better than your competition, you'll have a real, really hard time getting people switch over. If it's 10 times better, like I remember when Monzo first came out and you could freeze your card, you could track your spending, you could transfer money to a friend without worrying like it was so easy you just needed their phone number basically so it did make that personal banking element 10 times better and i'm sure a lot of people kept their traditional bank as well but you you could get a kind of prepaid coral nice card through the post within a couple of days and it was all quite fun and exciting but yeah shifting you know shifting users from one platform to another is quite a slog so you either have to be doing something completely new or much better that's what's that that's where defensibility comes from you know being quick to market creating an environment where people don't have there's no need for them to switch i mean you look at something like peloton it's an incredible business model really i mean it's mm-hmm. had a lot of criticism recently mm-hmm. is that one in the background i can see yeah that's my peloton in the background <laughs> which could definitely be used more but the, the day i bought a peloton i went and bought the stock as well because i realized that I was never going to cancel my £40 a month subscription because I've just spent £2,500 on a bike. Like, 
why would I ever cancel the £40 a month subscription? If I'm, get, if I'm not using it enough, I think I need to use it more, not I'm going to cancel because I've got this big bit of hardware that if I cancel would be completely redundant. So it's, the got, it's got the highest retention model of any, fin- of any fitness company of all time. Um, they have 0.64% churn rate a year. The average fitness company, whether that be a gym or a, a, just a streaming app, is 90% churn rate within the first 30 days because if you don't go or you don't use it, you, you delete it and you're out. So, you know, that's a great example of something that, you know, they're building defensibility through something that's not necessarily tech. It's, I mean, there is obviously a lot of tech, but it's just through the model is, is so defensible and I would never switch it out. So yeah, and, and look, fintechs, there's all different ways of building defensibility. But when we look at companies, retention is one of the most important things. If you're growing and you have very strong retention, you're investable. If you have high churn rate, you're not investable. <laughs> so, you know, we, we looked at a, a prop tech kind of fintech that was helping students manage all their bills and cost saving by switching them over and doing all these types of things. Well, they had an 83% churn rate at the end of each student year because most people were, you know, a lot of their customers were leaving and moving city or a lot of them were moving to a new house where someone else is in charge of the bills. And so they'll sort it out and it doesn't matter what I used last year. Yeah, that's that's not investable for us. So we we said no to that company. We They said, well, well we're building this new thing. I said, well, is that going to fix your retention? No. Well, then why are you building that? Because this is the problem you've got at the moment. And a year later, they've come back and said, that was really interesting what you said. You were kind of right. We've we've discontinued the product we ended up building and we're going to focus now more on retention. And like, yeah, retention is one of the most important things for startups and any founder should be looking at how they, of course, grow, but are they keeping users within their environment? Yeah, yeah. And, and that's always been something that fin- financial services has needed where, I, again, the, you know, life insurance is a classic where, the costs of selling a life insurance policy are up front are quite heavy, but you've got 25 years to recruit that. And and I'm, I'm not hope I, w- I would suspect you're not investing in many companies that need 25 years to recover their upfront costs, but there's still an aspect of that to everybody. Yeah, I mean, hopefully not. I mean, we're, we we have a another one of our criteria is path to profitability. So we we actually don't really invest in companies that are going to be making a massive loss in year five. You know, we want them to be, uh, have the optionality to, to turn a profit by optimizing a few of the dials. So yes. And, and, and look, payback periods and lifetime value versus customer acquisition costs are all important metrics for founders to consider. But, you know, there are certain business models where, you know, the payback is maybe a long time um, and you can have a loss leader entry level product. So like you could argue that the, the kind of FX product of Revolut was a bit of a loss leader because they charge really low fees, but now they do everything. So wasn't it worth signing up those initial, you know, I think they were sort of eight or nine million customers before they really started to move into other sectors. So wasn't that worth it? Well, it, it was definitely worth it. So um, it's fucking good balance, right? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So looking forward, uh, there was an article, a famous article, I think last year, someone or the year before, where someone said everything's going to become a fintech company. How do you see fintech going forward over the next few years? This has been discussed quite a lot recently, and actually, we've we've just had a guest on our podcast where someone said fintech is no longer a sector it's a business model and so you're getting all these sound bites around fintech Mm -hmm. which is kind of confusing what everyone means by all of this i think i think what people are saying (laughs) yeah i think i think what people are saying is that you know being at the intersection of transactions and how you know the user's finances and what they are doing is so valuable that you want to have a big part of that. So whether that's you know Shopify starting out as an e-commerce, but now offering their their merchants banking services, you know, that's a good example of a company that's not a fintech, 
moving to be more like a fintech because they understand that basically people are setting up a Shopify store and then their money is going somewhere and it's going somewhere away from the Shopify environment. Wouldn't that be good to just offer them a Shopify bank account and then it's all managed within one place and they can start to be a lot cleverer about, you know, categorization and all sorts of things, tax, everything. So you kind of run your business through Shopify. And I think that's the key is anything around someone's business or their personal finances. If you're a big part of that, then you have the opportunity to expand into more financial services around that because it's, yeah, it's, it, it's kind of where they go next is they, they look at their, you know, the revenue on Shopify and then they go and check their bank account to check it's actually come in. So I think we will start to see more and more stuff, but I think we'll also see a lot of partnerships. I think Amazon have recently done a buy now, pay later deal with a firm, um, AFFIRM, and a firm's stock price has gone crazy since. But that's a good example of a big tech company going, well, yeah, we want to do financial services, but actually this buy now, pay later stuff, you know, do we want to take on that risk? Why don't we partner with someone for a few years? And if it really works out, then maybe we we do our own thing eventually. But that's the opportunity for the incumbent fintechs is to kind of mop up where they can and be as big as they can or be the provider. Um, so, you know, that's a good white label partnership right there. And I think we'll see a lot more fintechs having a B2B to see offering. So we invested in a company called Timeit, T-Y-M-I-T. Um, they're a new credit card business. They're reinventing the credit card. One of the reasons we invested was, yes, they have a really amazing app and it's nice credit card and it's really cool and it's got buy now, pay later functionality. But they were adamant that they would become a B2B company in the long run. They were so confident in their technology and their backend infrastructure that they see themselves powering credit cards for other companies. And the card on the front end is just the card. And the app is just white labeled, but actually it's tying it underneath. And that was the that was the most exciting thing to us as investors. If you're that confident in your product and offering, and you're already in conversations with these huge companies about powering their own credit card, mm-hmm. um, that starts to get very exciting for us. So yeah, there's a there's a lot of opportunity within the fintech around like white labeling. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, that's, that's that's interesting. So what I'd like to do now is move on to our sort of standard questions. So I'll throw these at you, and we'll get your thoughts. What yeah. was the most recent publicly announced investment that you made, and why did you make it? Uh, there's probably two I can talk about. So. The first is one I personally invested and I organized a, a syndicate around, which is an insurtech called Superseed. So they are changing the way reinsurance is done. The reason we invested is a fewfold. I've been tracking them for a while. I wanted to invest through my new fund, but their round was going to close before our fund launches. So the founders very kindly gave me an allocation to fill. And we we did so. The reason I invested is both the founders are ex-Aon Insurance, so they've got very strong founder market fit. They've just hired Willis Reinsurance's chief technical officer as their chief product officer, which is a really strong signal because he's moved over since being pitched to this new tech platform, which is very exciting. So he obviously believes in it. And they're backed by very good investors. So Outward VC, Episode 1, MMC Ventures have all invested. And yeah, we've been building a relationship with them for a long time. So you know, we've just been excited about what they're up to. So that's, that's one I personally invested in. The other is a company that we raised money for through the Pringle Capital Network, which is just one of the hottest things in UK tech at the moment, which is Nachi. And Nachi is actually my fiance's company, but I'm, I don't think I'm being too biased by saying it's one of the hottest companies. We've had inbound <laughs> interest from the biggest VC firms in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm not going to name them, but you can imagine who the biggest VC firms in the world are. And Nachi is the Depop of homeware. So Depop has just been acquired by Etsy for $1.1 billion. It's a social shopping platform for fashion. And Nachi is a social shopping platform for homeware. So basically anything you can imagine filling your home with, 
there's um, a, a kind of social shopping experience. So you follow people that have a good eye, you buy their things, you buy things that they like, all that type of stuff. So yeah, it's uh, it's really interesting. And uh, it's got a massive sustainability element to it, which is just natural within the product. So there's over 22 million bits of furniture thrown away in the UK each year. And Nachi is obviously a marketplace that helps people to kind of sell or recycle or upcycle furniture and stuff like that. Um, but obviously Nachi does a lot more than furniture, but that's just one metric that, or one one stat that really stands out and says, you know, we don't need to be throwing all this stuff into the ground. Like let's, there's enough stuff out there. It just needs to be in the right home. So yes. yeah, so there's a couple there, but we're always doing new deals through Pringle Capital and we're, we're building a really solid pipeline of relationships for the new fund as well. So yeah, always happy to see stuff and, and yeah, we're always kind of doing deals. Excellent. So in the classic VC triumvirate of market products or management, we know they're all important, but which one is the most important to you? So I, I was actually thinking about this earlier and I think products is the most important because I think that can encompass all of them to some extent. So when I when I look at products, actually, it's usually like the management's ability to deliver on product. So when we're investing at an early stage, the product might not be there yet, but it's the management's ability to deliver on product. And product is so important. If you've got a great product, it makes marketing cheaper, hiring easier, your attention's better. So product is really, really important. Obviously, team is massively important, but you can hire, when I look at management teams, I want to see a founder that's like over-indexed in one sector, like, or in one attribute, because they can hire around them. Once they've got the money, they're going to be able to hire good people to fill in the other areas. So yeah, I mean, like a founder who's amazing at marketing is great because you know, they're going to be able to hire product people and hire tech people and operations and things like that. So yeah, the, sh- the short answer is product, I think for me is the most important. Um, a large total market is a must have requirement. So you don't even get through the, the gates unless there's a huge total addressable market. But once you're through that, it's, it's kind of product and the management's ability to deliver on product. And obviously team is important, but Actually, traction is probably more important than team. I'm an avid reader, and lockdown's been fantastic for getting through lots of books. Anything that you like and would recommend to people? So, yeah, I I thought about this. So I I do read, but not as much as I should or would like to, but I do read. Um, There was a book that I actually read a long time ago, which I still go back to. And I've actually got it here. I've just realised I've got it here. I didn't realise I had it here. (laughs) But it's called The Personal MBA. It's by a guy called Josh Kaufman. And I read it when I was 16. And I've read it three or four times since. And he's actually got a website. It's like a blog now. But the idea within it, he kind of takes on the traditional MBA in a way of sort of saying, "What, what would you get from an MBA? And he goes through that. And then he actually teaches you everything that you'd get from an MBA and it's kind of condensed down. So he has gone, he's done all the research for you. Basically, he's gone through lots of different MBA programs, what they teach, what books they recommend. He's read all the books. He's then consolidated those down and he's put all the information into a single book, which is 378 pages long. And there's some amazing stuff in there. And I think... I am quite lucky because I knew quite early on what I wanted to do with my career. I knew I wanted to be involved in tech and startups in an early stage. And then that led to, actually, I want to invest in those companies. But the personal MBA helped me get there by basically set, you know, teaching me some things, but also challenging the way I thought about business and what I wanted to do and where I could personally maximize what I thought I might be good at to to build, hopefully, a successful career. So I absolutely love this book. It is a bit dry. You know, I, not everyone loves business books, but I do. And this is a really good one. 
Excellent. That's a resounding endorsement there. I like that. What do you wish you knew when you started VC investing that you know now? What do I wish I knew? Oh, there'll be lots of things. One thing that I've realized is no deal is perfect for everyone. So we we look at lots of different companies and we'll find a company and sometimes you're like, wow, this is a home run. Like this is an absolute winner. And then you'll put it out to 100 people and 20 will come back and go, this looks great, James. Yeah, can we have a phone call? You get like 20 people going, no, not for me. And you're thinking, how is these? How are these perspectives so wildly different? And people will come up, you know, what well, not come up necessarily, but they'll 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 justify their decisions of whether it's yes or no in completely different ways. So you sometimes have people going, oh, it's um, the market's not big enough. And you have someone invest who goes, I just love it because the market's massive, and it's like, how do they get so far apart? So you know, everyone needs to use their own kind of nuance and knowledge to to get their own find their own edge but i'd guess i'd say that the number one thing is probably the importance of of really understanding product at the beginning we invested in well we didn't invest necessarily but we we, we didn't necessarily focus enough on companies that really had product expertise in in the founding team so we've always said we want a CTO on the team and things like that. You know, we want in-house tech teams, which is still part of our criteria. But actually, you can have a brilliant CTO who's great at coding, but do they really understand the product they're building? Are they are they like a product expert? Are they going to go and do customer interviews and road mapping and prioritization and all these things that's going to help them go from zero to product within kind of six to 12 months? And we have seen some companies that look, you know, team look amazing on paper, but it's taken them over a year to really get to product. And that, that starts to get really hard because then they start coming back to market. Oh, we might need some more money and da, 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 and, and you're like, but what, what have you validated with? Well, our, our wait list has grown. Okay, well, that is good. But a wait list is, is narrative. It's this is what we're going to build. What I need to see is that you can build. And... It, become, it gets really hard to do a second pre-seed round. Your pre-seed round has to get you through to product, live, metrics, numbers, ideally revenue, all these things like growth. You have to start talking about growth metrics. And if you're still pre-launch, you're going to find it almost, well, not impossible, but you're going to find it really hard to, to convince enough people. You're going to have to go around and, take a bit of a battering on the fundraising scene. Mm, yes. So if anyone wants to find out more about what you're doing, where should they go? Search for me on LinkedIn. Uh, I'm a big LinkedIn user. So to search James Pringle. We'll, we'll post a link to your profile in the show notes. Yeah, perfect. Um, so yeah, contact me on LinkedIn. People can email me, james at pringlecapital.com. We are super open. I've got my email on my LinkedIn and everything. You know, we want people to get in touch. So please do that. We also host a podcast. So it's quite good. I've listened to a few. So thank you. Yeah. So go and search for Riding Unicorns on your favorite podcast platform and have a listen to that. But really, you know, anyone who's interested in angel investing or EIS investing, we're happy to hear from. And always, we want to hear from founders. Um, we receive more than 50 decks a week. We have a lot of deal flow, but we always want to see more and we'll always reply. So you always hear from one of the team. It might be quite a short yes or no, but um, you'll always hear back from us and we'll try and provide feedback where possible. So if you're raising your first round, you're a UK company, get in touch. Great. Okay. Well, thank you very much for coming on, James. I've really enjoyed that conversation. No problem. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, it's a great podcast. And yeah, hopefully lots of people will listen to not just this episode, but all your episodes so that they learn more and more about EIS because it's such an important part of the tech ecosystem and it's still got a long way to go. So more and more people should engage with it. Thank you for the kind words. So we hope you enjoyed that. 
If you want to find out more, the show notes will be available at hardmanco.com forward slash podcast. If you like, really like what you heard, you can give us a review with lots of stars on iTunes. You can subscribe to this through iTunes, Spotify, and all good podcast players. If you want to give us feedback or find out more about what we're doing, then you can send us an email at inquiries at harmonandco.com. Thanks very much for listening and hope to hear from you soon.